when your when your name was on there, the I, I just really, can you put the like my name thing on there? Like the, I just like that it said like this is Jeff McGuire, epic lead pastor. I like that it said that about Jordan too. You know, Jordan Maslin, epic high school pastor. And I agree. We all agree. You're awesome. So great that you're taking so many students to camp. It is so fun. So many, so many of us have had great experiences at camp, met Jesus there in some way or another, or discovered something new about him or community. Hi, you guys. So good to be with you. Um, I, I'm so glad you're with us. So good morning. Good morning. I'm glad you guys got up and are here. And um, I know there are lots of places you could be. Uh, instead of at 9 o'clock at church, you could be having waffles. You could be relaxing. You could be trying to get out into the heat, as Jordan described it, being kind of the enemy. But I'm so glad that you're here. I also like that you're wearing a, like a 1984 skiing shirt, too. Just this rebellion again. Yeah, well, don't say that again. That's mean to say that to me. You weren't born yet. Um, but anyway, so glad that you guys are here. I, I'm, as we're, um, I just got back from my, uh, my family is, I, some of you guys read our Compass note that we, we send out every Thursday, but uh, I just got back from, from Texas. Amanda's family is in San Antonio, and so we go to visit, and you know, ba- basically, I mentioned a little bit of this in the, in the Compass note that I sent out, but basically, it's me battling humidity for, you know, eight days and trying to figure out why Texans are so excited about their, their state, and I cannot understand why they love it so much, and they look, at, they look down on every other state, and every other state looks at them and goes, you're crazy. You're so insane. But deal with humidity, I um, get to visit some churches and learn some stuff. I get to figure out why there's so much misplaced and misdirected Texas pride. It's so bizarre how people love it. But, but anyway, it was great to be there. Good to be back now. We're in the third week of our series. Last week we had uh, Bianca Oltoff spoke here. I just heard great stuff. People just overwhelmed with how great she is. She, I mean, she just demands that you yell back at her stuff. Is that the best? Like, hey, that was good. You've got to say something. I mean, I'm... You, you can say stuff to me, but I, I'm a little bit more like, oh my gosh, did you say something? But she is like, you got to say stuff. Her great thing. She's so fun. Um, but just having a, the series has been so cool. People have been giving us great feedback about what's been going on in our series called Epic. And um, basically, it's just look at this. The Bible is full of all of these remarkable stories, all of these kind of incredible people. And there is this kind of heroes and villains kind of story, much like you might find in an epic story. And what we find is that as we look at this series is that what makes all of these heroes and their stories epic isn't that they're just Superman and there's nothing really wrong with them. It's that God uses these people who are incredibly weak in very heroic ways. In other words, God uses weak people in spite of their weakness or in some ways because of their weakness to overcome things. And that's kind of the most heroic thing. So you you might see this on the top of your outline. It says this in Hebrews chapter 11. It says this. This is kind of a, I condense a little bit of a few verses, but Hebrews 11, 32 to 34 says this. And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about those who shut the mouths of lions, quench the fury of, of flames, escape the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength. Hebrews 11 is kind of this gathering, this hall of fame of people, the Bible, and it just basically says God uses people whose weakness was turned into strength, and that's the epic story we've been looking at. It's been really cool to hear people's responses to what's been going on. So excited about today. Let's do this. Let's pray, and then we'll get into today's message, and we'll see what God has for us. Let's pray. God, we're grateful. <clears throat> As Ethan was kind of challenging us in the, in the opening of our, of, our, um, of our service, that we would be people who are thankful, that we'd be challenged to be thankful people. Lord, there's a lot to be thankful for. And yet, Lord, there is also so much in our own lives that we aren't grateful for. There's things that are, are um, secrets that we have buried. There are things that we hide. There are um, fears. There are questions. There are doubts. There are regrets. There's pain. And Father, there's a lot that we do to sort of hide those things that we might be able to function in the world. And yet we know that in some way or another, that's the part of us that needs the most work. 
today, Father, we come to you and we just confess that we do not have the power or the capability to overcome those things on our own. We've tried. We want to see them be conquered, but we need you. And so for just a moment, <clears throat> would you acknowledge, just in the stillness of your own you know, heart, would you acknowledge what it is in your own life that God might be kind of inviting you to deal with, allow him to deal with in some capacities, just for a moment, wherever you might be in your own faith journey. What's God calling you to just in stillness? Let him speak to you. Lord, we're people in need of your mercy. We need your help. We come not just to hear some songs and to run into some people and drink some coffee. We come here because there's stuff in our lives that we really need to deal with, and we don't know how. And we need to not be shamed because we feel those things. And Lord, we, we pray that you would give to us a chance to move forward in your power and your strength, even in the midst of our weakness, Father. And so... We're grateful that you receive us as we are and that you look at us and say, I can't leave you that way because I love you too much. So we welcome your change and your challenge today, Jesus. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, we're going to be in um, 2 Kings chapter 5. If you have your own Bible, you can take a look in there. If you like to scribble notes in there, if you want to follow along, you know, on your own sort of digital device, do that. We also have an outline, which is in your bulletin, if you want to pull that out and take notes. Or if you just are like, I'm going to stare at the screen, we have everything you need will be on the screen as well. Um, I, um, this, this, past, this past week, as I'm in Texas, I told you guys I was, you know, we're, one of the things I realized as my kids are getting older, and there's all kinds of, you know, stuff I'm kind of observing that's really fun. I was the only child, so watching my, my own kids have siblings is kind of an interesting dynamic for me. And I'm kind of looking at my wife like, Amanda, is that like kind of normal? Is that what they're supposed to be doing? Yes, that's what they do. And okay, all right, cool, I don't know. And, um, but one of the things I realized is I'm constantly trying to help my kids overcome fear. That there's, there's certain things that they're afraid of. We all do this as parents if you are a parent. Um, you have this sense of like, all my kids to not have irrational fears about things. You know, there's, the, there's always the, there's something under the bed. There's all that kind of stuff. There's the, you know, which of course I realize that's the biggest. I have the most hypocrisy when I'm trying to tell my kids not to be afraid of the dark. Like, I, like the, the, this church, you know, you know you, a lot of you guys don't know, there's like lots of weird back tunnels and stuff because this used to be a theater, movie theater. And, um, you know, so like there's all kinds of exits and stuff and not all of them are lit. And so when you leave the office, if you're the last person to leave the office and you have to walk through the dark tunnel, you're just sure there's a guy that's been waiting for you all day to just come out and just stab you, you know? Oh, hey, ow! You know, like, so I, I'm, I mean, I'm telling my kids, don't be afraid of the dark, all this kind of stuff. And, and I'm watching this, this, you know, I'm watching all of this kind of stuff to come together. And um, we, uh, I, I, I put this in the compass as well. We, I, me and my father-in-law built a zip line over his pool. And, and this is pretty fun. So, you know, in Texas, everybody has a humongous yard. Like, you can't believe it. You'll look at the yard and go, no way. It's just, but it's like, because no one wants to live there, they give you a yard. Like, they just, <laughs> here's a yard. But there's this huge yard, and it's full of all these oak trees. And so I'm like, we got to put, I'm, and now I, this is a little bit of like Jedi stuff that I did to my father-in-law. Because I, I, Amanda was going out with her, her mom to go buy some stuff. And I said, right, can you guys go stop by and, you know, here's what you need. It's at REI. Go pick this thing up. And she's like, did you talk to my dad? I go, no. She goes, well, yeah. She goes, you want me to pick up a zip line? And I go, yeah, pick it up and I'll install it. And so she brings it back. Now, my plan for years has been zip line over the pool. But I don't tell my father-in-law that. I just, I'm just like, oh, we're going to put a zip line up in one of the many oak trees in your massive property. We're going to put one up there and we'll just run around the grass and avoid the fire ants and try not to be carried off by mosquitoes or whatever else it is. But we're going to be out in the back. 
And as soon as we get home, he's, um, he's unpacking it and he's putting, he's like, he's like, oh, where do you want to put this? Like, I don't know, I was just thinking kind of the back. He goes, you know what would be really fun is over the pool. And I was like, oh, huh, didn't think about that. Maybe we should put it between that tree and that tree. I just, I, I just th- thought of that right now. But we get out there and I just want you to see, like here, I'll show you the picture of Zipline. For those of you guys who don't know what that is. So there's, that's, that's my oldest son over the pool. Uh, and then I'll show you kind of how we, how we kind of made it even more dangerous. So go to the next slide. There's, so we built this platform. And there's my youngest son. Uh, and so they jump off this thing, and there's like, there's a gap, there's a little bit of grass, probably six feet of grass, and then three or four feet of just pool deck, like cement pool deck. And there's a moment where I, every, every, which I took a little bit of joy in, that my, when Amanda would watch the kids go over the zip line, there was, she would like, oh gosh, right, for the first, you know, eight or ten feet, she's like, oh my gosh, please hit the pool, please go in the pool, don't die, because it's just a handle, there's no, I mean, there's no safety harness, it's like, you break your ankle or you end up in the pool, that's it. And my son, my oldest, who helped us, you know, it was like the first time he helped. He, he, goes, he goes to me and my father-in-law, he goes, hey, uh, you know, tomorrow when we build this thing, can it just be the old guys? And I was like, are you one of the old guys? And he's like, yeah, I'm one of the old guys. I'm like, yeah, then you, yes, you can help. And so he wanted to help build this thing. And so he's like all excited. He gets up there, and he's like about ready to jump off, and he goes, I can't do it. And I go, don't let fear rule that you have, you got, you got to jump off this thing. And of course, I get up there, and I go, <laughs> I'm not doing this, you know, but I'm just, now all this to say is this, there's so much fear that I'm, I'm looking at my son, I'm telling my wife, it's, it's important that they overcome this, and they got to do this, and I'm trying to get over, I'm trying to help them understand some things, but the part of what we do to help our kids grow up is to overcome the things that are, that are fearful, whether it's dark or bullies or whatever else it might be, we're trying to help them overcome fear, and there is a fear that we all have that none of us seems to grow out of. There's a fear that we all hold on to, no matter how old we get, that still seems to be something that governs the way in which we live. And I think if, if, there's, if there's anything God might be saying to us today, it might be that if we could address this fear, then our lives could be different. Our li- if we could address this one fear, then our lives could be changed. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Here's what it says in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of um, Aram, or Aram, or however you want to say it. And Aram is a, you know, this is a kingdom that's in it's Syria and Iraq. It's a, big, it's a big, powerful nation. And he was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier. I'll stop right there. Some of you are still wondering what that big fear is. I know, I'm not telling you yet. Hang on. But there's this guy who is known, the, the, way, the setup for this story is, here's this mighty warrior. If you had to pick an epic person, a heroic person from all the land, in all of where, you know, all of Aram, in all this ancient world, all the, you would say, that's the guy, his name's Naaman, this is the guy. He is incredibly tough. This is the, this is the guy who's going to win battles for you. Now, have you ever had the experience where someone tells you all these great things about yourself and then concludes that long list of awesome things about you with the word but? And you just go, you just, erase. it's the magic eraser. It just erases everything you just, everything you just said is a dry erase board. And then, but, we all really don't like you. Whatever it is, right? Check this out. So he's this valiant soldier, verse 1 again. But he had leprosy. So here's all of these accomplishments that this guy has. He's known as this valiant warrior. He's a highly respected person. A general in an army is the same thing as like, it's not only just like a general. It means he's super wealthy. He's super influential. He's got kind of the the prime minister, secretary of state powers as well. And he answers only to the king. But he has leprosy. 
There's something in his life that is needing to be dealt with. You know, ancient, in the ancient Near East, leprosy is one of those things where, and it's all different kinds of leprosy. When we think about leprosy, we only think about the kind where people lose limbs. But leprosy includes every kind of known skin disease that's visible to other people. But when you have leprosy, when it's identified as leprosy, the only way that sort of stuff is dealt with with leprosy is that you are quarantined, you are ostracized, you live with other lepers, and nobody else wants you around. In fact, you know, this is the, for the, for the um, Israelites, the, what their command was, if you have leprosy, you, you yell at, you let you grow, you make your hair messy, and you have kind of torn clothes, and you yell out, unclean. Un- you yell it, unclean, unclean, so everybody knows to stay away. And the only way you could be a person of influence with leprosy the only way you could kind of have any sort of understanding of being known as someone who's a valiant soldier with this debilitating, ostracizing skin disease is if you cover it up, if you can hide it, if you can bury it, if there's some way or another through everything else, you can sort of cover it over. And with Naaman's ability to have this position, he can cover it with not only his position, his influence, but with his armor, with everything that says warrior, strong person, battle person, he can cover it up. See, our greatest fear is no different than Naaman's. The greatest fear every one of us in this room has, the one that we're always constantly aware of, and though we might name, if I was to ask you your greatest fear, some of you would say spiders, or you would say, you know, flying, or open spaces, or, you know, mean people, or the number 13, or whatever, all weird, which, by the way, that's called triskaidekaphobia, just to let you know. Looked it up. Anyway, but um, all of those other fears are so minor in comparison to this one, which is our own fear of being exposed. That the truth of who we really are, the stuff that's underneath everything else that we got going, all the smile and the polish and the, you know, the minivan, which I have, it's awesome, all of that stuff, that there's something else going on there and we're so afraid of being exposed. Now, Naaman figures out at some point he figures out that there's a, um, there's, a, there's a person in Israel who, or in Samaria, who can actually, you know, heal. And the sto- I don't have time to go into the story, but I just want to tell you, the most heroic figure in the story is in verses 2 through 4. I just want to tell you that. You can look at it later, read it later. It's the best story. It's the best part of the story. But he finds out there's someone in Israel who can heal him. Now, Israel is the enemy. These are people who they've been fighting, you know, with on and off again for a number of years. I mean, it's like they just, they're constantly enemies. And he finds out that someone can heal him in Israel, and he goes to his own king, and he, here's, here's what it looks like. Verse 5 says this, By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver. Every talent is about 75 pounds. Just to give you an idea of how much silver that is. A talent in the, in the New Testament, as we, you know, we talk about life of Jesus, when people talk about the word talent, you hear the word, and that means generally about 10 to 20 years of earnings for a day, day laborer. That's how much money is we're talking about here. This is, this is like gazillions of dollars. Um, so he taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of leprosy. What the king acknowledged, what, what the king of Iran, this is really interesting, the king recognizes that the one who has the most power is probably the one who has the most capacity for healing. So king of Aram, who, you know, this is kind of typical of people in the ancient world, would always believe themselves kings, would believe themselves to be something like the sons of God. That's not uncommon for them to have that kind of title. And so he believes, well, my power isn't working here. I love Naaman. This is kind of an act of humility. But he assumes that the king of Israel is the one who can bring about 
healing. And he sends Naaman with this letter to the king saying, hey, heal my servant because clearly you have some kind of power. We've heard that someone there is actually someone who can heal leprosy. So Naaman takes all of the, at least 750 pounds of just silver, plus the 10 sets of clothes, plus the however many 6,000 shekels of gold is. It's a massive amount of wealth, and he goes to this king who's his own enemy. And because he's got all this stuff, that means he's also got an entourage, and he shows up. Verse 7, after the king gets a letter. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Do I, can I kill and bring back to life? Like, I wonder how this, you know, I wonder how this exchange goes. Because here comes a letter, and he's like, huh, you have leprosy? A, what are you doing in my castle, or whatever it is? And B, am I God? Can I do this? Am I the person who can, you think I'm the person who can solve this problem for you, but I don't, I don't, ha- I don't have the power. And then he starts to panic. Look what he says, continuing on. Uh, see, uh, see, now he says, why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a fight with me, pick a quarrel with me? Like, he doesn't know what's happening. So, Presumably now there, there's a there's Naaman is sent to the king. The king now goes, why did you come to me? Oh, my God, can I heal you? And then, oh, I know what's happening here. I'm trying to pick a fight, which that's the most bizarre way to ever pick a fight, you know? I'm sending my general with leprosy to you. Oh, I know what's going on. It's a battle. Nope, he just has leprosy. Right, so this king is tearing his clothes. He's all this kind of stuff. Tearing, by the way, tearing your robes is just like this way of explain, like displaying extreme grief. Like, I'm so sad. I don't, you know, I don't, I've never done this before. I've never felt that sad. But that's what that is, right? Now, he, tell, he has this kind of I'm so sad moment. Verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your clothes? Meaning, why are you in such grief? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there's a prophet in Israel. Now, when he says, no, there's a prophet in Israel, what it basically means is this. That God is speaking in Israel. God is at work in Israel through a person called the prophet. So send him to me. I'll let him know that God's at work. That's all he says. Like basically it's like, it's the, basically all he's saying is just calm down. Stop tearing your clothes and just send him to me. I'll deal with him. Verse 9. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. So here, here's Naaman, the valiant soldier, the guy who's got everything that he could possibly want. He's got all the power and influence in the world, but he has leprosy and he shows up at Elisha's house, and he's got chariots and horses. There has never been a bigger display of intimidation and power than that to most people, right? You understand? I mean, he shows up. You can imagine him. He shows up at the house. He's got the, the chariots. By the way, chariots aren't even in Israel at the time, so these are like, it would be like showing up in a, in a remote village of the Amazon with tanks. Like, what are those things, right? So here come these chariots. You can imagine Naaman kind of standing there. He's probably, you know, kind of built guy. He's pretty buff, probably. He's got this cape. I don't know if there's a cape, but I'm imagining there's a cape. But you can imagine it kind of flowing in the wind there. And he's standing outside the door of this house. Here I am. Chariots, the wealth, everything. All the displays of everything that make him important in his own country are right there on display. Everything. And he stands at the door. Here I am. Verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger to him to say, now listen, (laughs) you have to imagine for a second, when you think that he's standing at the door, don't imagine your own house. Don't imagine like, you know, a 1,700 square foot townhome, okay? Imagine a hut. This isn't like, he doesn't live in a planned community. This isn't Ladera Ranch. There isn't a pool nearby with a slide and manicured grass. He's living in a hut. 
And so it's like Naaman shows up, and it's not like he can't see Elisha in there. I mean, imagine just re- like he's, you know, here comes a servant opening the door, which is probably a curtain, or, you know, maybe it's just, he just kind of like looks in there. It's like, uh, hi, I'm Elisha's, mes- I'm Elisha's messenger. Yeah, can I talk to Elisha? No. Do you not see the chariots and the, I can see him. He's right there. You may not talk to him, just me. I'm Naaman. Do you not, I can, st- I'm powerful. Yes, I know. I'm going to be speaking to you now. Elisha, can I talk to you? I mean, he's right there. Why doesn't he get up out of his seat and come talk to this guy? Because evidently, all of the displays of power and all the coverings over things that are really bothering, you know, really bothering us, all the things that are sort of buried beneath, underneath all these other things, these power displays, this wealth, this influence, all of that stuff, they mean nothing to God's guy. They do not garner him any credit. He doesn't get to, it's not like Elisha goes, wow, he's a general. Let me put on my, you know, wow, just, hi. You know, there's none of that. It's just a messenger has something for you. I'm not kind of in awe of you. God isn't in awe of you. You're just a general. You're another guy. So you get to talk to the messenger. Now imagine, nobody says this to Naaman. Continuing on, verse 10. The messenger says to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. Wait, wait a second. That's it? You send a message? I could just go wash in the river? I could have done that at home. I got to go wash. You're sending, you, you, Elisha, send a messenger to me to tell me to go wash in the river. And this bizarre seven times, in the, like, the original language, it has it being dipped seven times. So I don't know what that means. These are like, Jump in, does he not? I mean, it's like, but he's supposed to seven times. That's so, so here's what his response is. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand, on, stand and call in the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Meaning, I wanted some kind of moment where God's guy would show up with equal kind of power to mine and do the sort of David Copperfield, you know, magic trick, David Blaine, whatever kind of thing, and it would appear to be this thing, and I would be healed. I want that. I don't want the wash. Look what he says, even continuing on, verse 12. Are not, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. God has an explanation. God does not give him an explanation for how he's going to be healed. He gets told by God's guy's messenger, go wash off in the river. And he says, that's not enough. That makes no sense. I'm a big, important person. And yes, I have this issue. It's underneath a few things. But I, I know how it should be dealt with. There's a way in this is, which this is supposed to be handled. And you aren't handling, the right, handling it the right way. So I'm walking off of here. I'm out of here. I will leave. You see... He wanted a healing. He was desperate to be helped. But it made no sense to him, so he ran away in a rage. Because he's a lot like us. We have stuff in our lives, things that are somewhat, some things are incredibly serious. Some of them aren't so serious, but they're issues in our lives that we cover up. And we've been given a way to deal with these things, and we oftentimes go, that doesn't make sense to me. It's not the right time. You know, I don't know, you know that God may be calling you to do something in, in, in your life in some way or another that's like, you've got to deal with some stuff in your life. And whether or not you're, if you're new to church, you're kind of like, I'm not sure how God does that stuff. But there's something in your life that you go, this is not healthy and I need to deal with it. 
But for all of us, we kind of go, well, this isn't the best time. It would be really hard to do. I need like, a, this is the wrong season. I'm going to need to keep these things up so that when I, you know, when I, it'll be a, there'll be a light at the end of the tunnel, and then I can deal with better timing. It'll be the right time. It'll, be, it'll make more sense. But right now it doesn't. And here's Naaman being confronted with, you've got to deal with some stuff in your life. And he seems to be saying, it doesn't make sense to me, and I don't like the way you're doing it, so I'm not, I'm not a part of it. Are there things to which God may be calling you, nudging you, inviting you that make absolutely no sense? The timing is terrible and dealing with it is going to be more painful than the actual issue itself? Are there things that God is saying to you, you know, you should start this in your life. There's some things you've got to start in your marriage or in your business or in your school or in your neighborhood or your relationships with other people or your family. There's just some things I've got to start. Is God saying, well, you know, you need to give that. That's something that needs to be given away. Is God saying to you, stop that or do this or let go of some of these things? What is he saying to you that does not make any sense, even though you know it's probably right? As I told you guys, as I'm watching my kids grow up, there's lots of great things I'm discovering about them. You know, I'm watching my youngest, my, I have two boys, one is five and, and one is ten, and I'm watching them begin to play together as if it's not just only my older son being annoyed by his younger brother. They're beginning to have moments that look like they're actually, you know, brothers. You know, some of them are involved violence. Most of the time it's a little more tame than that. But I'm watching my kids and their dynamic and I'm watching things. And one of the things I'm constantly trying to pay attention to is how they talk to each other. And so I told my kids, I'm like, you guys, you know, we have this new thing going on in our family that we need to kind of deal with. Okay, and I just go, what we're doing is a lot of us are escalating our voices when we're talking to people. We're escalating our intensity or our emotion, you know, and so my kids are like escalating, and all they can think of is escalator. So they're like, an escalator. I'm like, I just mean like it's from one degree, it's like, again, I'm not explaining this well, but I'm like, we start out with someone's hurt feelings, and then we start, everybody starts trying to one-up each other with volume and emotion, and it's just, you know, we need to really stop, you know, stop this kind of behavior. So I'll say to my kids, no, you're escalating, you know, like that. And, you know, traveling and everything else and time zones and Texas humidity and giant insects that bite your face and whatever, we're all there. And everybody's tension is pretty high. And I look at Amanda and I'm watching my kids yelling at each other and I go, look at this. Why do they talk to each other like this? She goes, no, there's no accusation in the tone. There's nothing else. She looks at me and she just goes, because that's how we talk to them. Well, I mean, only most of the time, Amanda. It's not all the time. It's just like predominantly it's how we speak to them. We're the ones. That's, and she goes, she goes, you know, she, she just kind of looks at me, just kind of stands there, gives me the face and smile. There's no, there's no accusations, no harshness there. But she's looking at me, and I, basically what she's saying in the most gentle way is, you are the escalator. My kids are talking the way I speak to them. Because I need them to stop talking that way. I get louder than they do and say, don't get louder. Stop escalating. They're looking at me like, is that what that is? That's what that looks like. That's what that is. Are we not supposed to do that? I'm afraid. I think most of the time I'm probably afraid my kids are going to end up doing something crazy. They're going to be disrespectful or do whatever. And so I react with volume and energy and emotion. Maybe God is saying to me, we're going to have to find a solution for that. And you need me to help you with that. And you don't want it because it's going to take longer. And your kids might test how loud they can get without you escalating at them. But we're going to work on this. God, this is bad timing. My kids are young and I need them to know I'm in charge. And I'm, you know, I, <laughs> I need that. I need that for my own ego. I need that for my own fear. 
God's saying, I know it doesn't make sense. I need you to stop being the one who's escalating things in your family. What is God saying to you that makes no sense? But that he might be calling you to do. So there's Naaman. He's got his chariots. It's all this display of power. He gets, his ego gets a giant slap in the face because the servant comes out and tells him, hey, go wash in the Jordan, which is like the least awesome river if you're from Aram because you have two other great rivers. And there's, he says, go wash in the Jordan seven times. And this guy is, you know, he's feeling rejected. He's got all this money. He's got all this stuff in front of him. And then here's what happens. Naaman's servants went to him and said, father, meaning this is just a term of respect. If the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you to wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. So somehow or another, he kind of goes, okay, you're right. If he had said go conquer this or go you know, slay a lion or burn a forest or whatever, I would have done those things. I'm not going to do that stuff. But what he's asking me to do requires absolutely, no, absolutely none of my powerful training or my capabilities. He tells me to remove everything that would otherwise be a symbol of that power and wash in the river. Now the greater shame that he's facing here isn't just that he has to wash because everybody has to bathe themselves from time to time. But it says there's the entourage, the chariots, the horses. And there's Naaman removing all the garments that are on his, his outer garments, the armor, the sword, the spear, the shield, the whatever else it is, and revealing what's already there underneath all of it to all the people who respect and love him. Naaman's greatest fear is now fully being realized because he's completely exposed. If you look back, remember what Naaman wanted was that Elisha would just walk out and wave a magic hand over him and he'd be healed. Which means he wouldn't have never, he pro- what he's actually saying is I don't, I don't want to have to take anything off. I don't want to be exposed. I just want God to do something that doesn't require any pain or discomfort or awkwardness or exposure or any fear of humility. I just want to be, I just, I just want, to, I want God to deal with it and nobody has to know what I'm really dealing with. Seven times. Walks into the water, dunks himself, walks out of the water. Now, if you fall in once or you wash yourself once, that makes sense. But this is absurd. Everything about this is completely absurd. Walk in again, dip yourself again, 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 again. I mean, in front of all these people who know you as a powerful person who bows to no one except the king. Fully exposed. Fully afraid. Verse 14, continuing on. Goes into the water seven times. His flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Evidently, there's some kind of connection between our own vulnerability and the healing God wants to do in our lives. Evidently, there's some kind of connection between our own vulnerability, our willingness to say, this is a for real thing in my life, and God's ability to bring about healing. There's some kind of connection. Or we go, honestly, this is what it is. And I'm afraid of being, I'm, a, I'm risking some stuff here. I'm afraid of being exposed because everyone's going to see it. I'm afraid. So we clamp down, we hold on to stuff. There's basically this process that Naaman goes through. Maybe you can identify with it. I wrote it just briefly on your outline, but it's this. There's a risk of humiliation. And God says, there's something in your life that we've got to deal with. You know it, and I know it, and we're all aware of it. And I love you so much that I need us to deal with this. 
Not I'm ashamed of you or I'm mad at you. It's just like, look, this is in your life, and I, I'm a person who brings about healing, but you've got to acknowledge it. And there is a risk of humiliation for you. I do not want you to be humiliated, but there's a risk you're going to have to go through. And then there's this moment in which Naaman discovers humility. It comes at the hands of his own servants, and they say, would, would you do what he asked, no matter what he said, if it was a great thing, but he asked you to do something humble? There's a moment in which we go, do we, Naaman finds some humility, do we find humility? And ultimately, there's a, get, there's a receiving of help. That is the process by which God works in us to heal us of everything. That's how it goes. I'm afraid if I talk about it or if I deal with it or I mention it to someone else or I you know, write it in a prayer request or I come forward and someone prays for me or whatever else it might be, then someone will know. They'll know this is my thing. They could say all these horrible things about me. They could throw me out of this building because of the stuff I've done because if they knew, they would throw me. It's a risk. In my experience of being in church, I've never had anybody thrown out of a building because they confessed some things that they were afraid of. They dealt with some things that were real in their life. I've never once heard that before. Because every single person in here is a wearer of armor that is burying and covering up things that are not real pretty. Every one of us in here. No one gets to be thrown out. But we're afraid of it. And there's Naaman, vulnerable and being healed. Verse 15. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God, and he stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. Now, remember the gift. It's so big that it requires an entourage to carry it. If Elisha accepts this gift, he'll be the richest guy in his own country, probably, you know, maybe second only to the king. And he's going, look, this is so great. Naaman says this incredibly bizarre controversial thing because he says the God of Israel is the only God in the world. Nobody says that in the ancient world. In fact, in the ancient world, what you would do is, you know, first of all, all gods are kind of tied to land or people, more so land than people. But so people, when you travel in the ancient Near East, you had to make sure when you entered into a new land that you offered the right sacrifices to the gods of that country so that you'd have favor in your travels and you'd have all these kinds of things. And now what this guy's saying is there's only one God and it's in, it's, it li- that God lives in Israel. It's Israel's God. And I'm so grateful for that God who has healed me that I'm now bringing all this offering, all of this incredible amount of wealth. And Elisha, God's guy, says this, verse 16. The prophet answers, surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. Meaning all of what God wants to give you in terms of this healing stuff that he's brought upon you, even though it was a painful process for you, which you now receive with joy, that can't be bought. It cannot be manipulated. It cannot be coerced. You don't get to make it happen because you're powerful or influential. It's a gift. If it's a gift, it can't be bought. It can't be manipulated. It can't be urged or nudged. It's just given to you. God wants to bring about this in your life. It's just a gift. It cannot be purchased. It is not something that can be controlled. Verse 17. If, if you will not, said Naaman, please, please let me, your servant, which is now, notice the change in posture. Initially he shows up. Army, the chariots, the guy, the cape, the I can see you but you're not talking to me. I'm going away totally furious. To Now he says, enable me 
your servant. Be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry for your servant, again speaking to himself, will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but to the Lord. Now, you have to, this is, remember, in the ancient world, gods are tied to land. Naaman is a brand new follower of Israel's God. He doesn't yet know that our God is the God of the whole universe. He's over everything. So what he does is he goes, well, I'm going to take some of the dirt from Israel, put it on the donkeys, and bring it back to my country so that God can be with me. That's basically what's happening there. So he loads up the donkeys. and they, and they, Now, what he's saying is, I am so dedicated to your God now because of what he's done, and he's my God, and I want him to be my God. And I don't know how it all works. I'm not totally sure how it's all figured. I don't, I don't get it all yet. But if he lives where you live, I want where you live to be with me. I'm taking it with me. Now, there's this, <clears throat> there's, this, there's this problem he has, though, because Naaman's going to go back, and in, he'll be the only person, except for the people that have been captured by this, by this country from Israel, he'll be the only person other than slaves who worship Israel's God. And he's the guy who serves the king, who worships in this temple, that is not God's temple. So what is he supposed to do? Look what he says in verse 17. Or I'm sorry, verse 18. But may the Lord forgive your servant, meaning again himself, Naaman, for this one thing. When my master, meaning the king, enters the temple of Ramon to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm, I have to bow there also. And when I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Now what he's saying is, I'm going to go back home, and because I serve the king... I'm going to be walking in this temple that I believe that that God doesn't even exist. He's like a shallow, hollow God, and i got to be there, and i got to bow down with him as this king's in there. And I don't believe it. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> I mean, I'm bringing the dirt back, and what, am I, what do I do? Elisha just says this. It's, <laughs> I mean, now remember, this is like, this is the first conversation. It's ever since, you know, Naaman comes back. It's the first time he's even talking to Elisha. Everything, everything else has been through servants. Elisha says this. Go in peace. Go in peace. And there's some, it's like, it frustrates, it frustrates people who are like, who grew up in the church, like, why doesn't he say, you know, I will never bow before Ramon, and why doesn't he just take a stab? And Maybe there's something else going on here. I don't, because here's what Naaman doesn't do. Here's this super influential guy. He doesn't say, I've now met Israel's God. I'm now going to live in Israel. I leave. I renounce chariots be gone, I'm now here, I live in this house, I leave everything else that's uncomfortable for me now, and I live here. I'm just going to run away and hide. doesn't say that. He doesn't also say, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to be real subtle about everything. I'm going to be kind of ninja-y. You know, like I'm going to go in, and no one will know, right, Elisha? I'll still do everything else the same, but no one will know. But he's got a story to tell now. He's got donkeys with dirt. He came with all this wealth, and now he walks back with donkeys with dirt on their backs, and he says, and they're gonna, there's going to be a story there, like, hey, what's with the dirt? Uh, I'm going to build an altar with it. Why do you have the dirt from somewhere else? I mean, there's a story there. Meaning, he's not going to just hide out in his, in his country and kind of just sort of, you know, bury whatever just happened. And the last thing, he doesn't, he doesn't then go back, he doesn't kind of go on the offensive and says, I'm going to go back and I'm going to kill 
you know, the king of Aram. I'm going to go, I'm just going to go on this rampage telling everybody that they're, he says, I'm going to be kneeling next to this guy in the temple. What should I do? What he's got is this unbelievable opportunity for influence. His life has been changed and there's a story to tell now. When we look at Naaman's life, <clears throat> a guy who has gone through this unbelievable process of greatness being stripped down to humility and being healed, he now has an opportunity for unbelievable influence in his country. He gets to say, this is my story. I don't understand how it worked. I thought I'd have to go do something spectacular. I thought the guy was going to wave his hand over me, but he told me to take off my armor and go wash in the river. It was super painful. It was so hard to do that. But when I, you guys all remember me. I had leprosy. I know you guys all know. I pretended like it wasn't really there, but it was really there. And, you know, I know. But now it's gone. I don't know how to explain everything. I'm not even sure how it works, but I brought this dirt from that land. I don't know. Because that's the only God. We have a story to tell, and it ought to be told. We are people in process. None of us have it all figured out. None of us has it all together. Every one of us has things in our lives, if we're really honest, that we cover over with different kinds of armor. And we need healing. Let me ask you, what is in your life that's being covered over? And maybe it's something you're kidding yourself about that you know everybody else knows about, but nobody's saying anything, but you really know everybody knows it. Is it a dependence? Is it a habit? Is it an old wound? Is it some kind of actual physical disease? Is it a need? What is it in your life that you go, I'm covering it up. I cover it up with a smile. I cover it up with success. I cover it up with my own, whatever. Because the next question is this, what's the armor that you employ? Do you strike out at other people? Do you use the armor of denial? Do you use the armor of anger? Do you use the armor of, of arrogance? Do you use the armor of avoidance? What is it that you use to cover up that thing which you know is there and everybody else knows, but they're not talking about it? So what is that thing? How is it being covered? How much longer can you live just trying to keep that armor on, covering it up? I mean, literally, think about it just in your own, the quietness. I mean, just think about it for a moment. How long can you live like that? Six months? A year? Two years? Ten years? Have you lived with it already for 15 years or 20 years and nobody knows? You're not dealing with it? How long can you live with it? Because it will eventually devour your entire body. How long do you want to deal with it? God's given us a unique opportunity to come clean to him, to come clean to other people, because God's inviting us to wash seven times in the river, however humiliating that might look for us, to take off our armor and to be clean. In a second, here's what's going to happen. You're gonna, we're going to watch a, a video in a moment of a, a woman whose own story, her own sort of name and story of exposing what was underneath the armor of her own life. And you're going to get a chance to respond. The band will come up. We'll sing. Some of you need to actually get up out of your seat and do the risking of humiliation and walk forward down these aisles knowing everybody might see you. And you might actually have to write something down on one of these prayer request things saying, I got this in my life. I need someone to pray for me. I don't know what else to do. 
We have teams of people, our own prayer team elders that will be up here praying for you. would love to pray with you. If you want to pray with someone, an actual live person, which you say, this is what's going on. And I know these people behind me can see, and they assume that I'm probably an axe murderer because I know that's what they think about me. And I walk down here, I'm so afraid. But this is my act of humility. This is, in effect, your own Jordan River that needs to be dipped in. What does it look like for you? Do you sing? Do you respond for the first time? Do you put a hand up maybe going, I've seen people do this, but I don't know why they do that. That's bizarre. I'm doing, I don't know what people think of me if I do that. My own in-laws call it, you know, oh, there's people, the holy rollers, and they're raising their hands. They're crazy. I don't know what to do with those people, you know. That's like a, like a little indictment against me, I guess. Let's pray together, and I want you to watch this video, and we'll respond. Jesus, we have, we have stuff in our lives that needs help. We want to be people who are honest, sincere. We want to be people who are realistic about the truth of what's in our lives, that we cannot do enough on our own. We cannot coerce with our power or our strength to make things happen that ought to happen in our lives. We need you. Father, we know that we need to be stripped down of whatever is in front of us, that we might risk exposure so that we might be clean. Father, if that means writing a prayer down and placing it in the prayer wall, if it means praying with some folks, if it means telling some people in our lives today about the stuff that's really going on so that we might be healed, give us the strength to do that. We're afraid of it. We're so terrified of being exposed. It's the fear we all have. Father, would you hear our response? Would you enable us with the words to respond to you? As we watch this story, Father, might we connect, maybe not with the specifics of the exact thing, but might we connect instead with the reality of our own disease, which is beneath our armor. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.